I'm Bethany Heinsbach, and as a partner at Shepherd Mullen, now as a managing director at AMI, I've certainly spent my fair share of time in the boardroom and several decades working with general counsels and chief compliance officers on investigations, litigation, and compliance challenges. And I've witnessed the evolution of boards and legal and compliance functions and how they interact. I'm particularly excited today thrilled, actually, to be joined by Carrie Robinson and Audrey Hannes, who both have been in those in-house hot seats. And we're going to talk this morning about that evolution, including the following topics. What's changing in the boardroom? What practical risk management approaches and tools they've seen be effective with today's boards, from partnering in a crisis to proactive reporting? What advice they would give to those sitting in the in-house hot seats today, as well as to those outside counsel that are working with GCs and CCOs. How to prepare for what's next, and perhaps even some perspectives on turning challenges into opportunities. So some brief introductions before we jump into it. Harry Robinson was most recently Executive Vice President and General Counsel for Revlon Inc. In that role, she oversaw Revlon's worldwide legal affairs, a trusted board advisor with a huge mandate from M&A to compliance to IP. Prior to Revlon, Carrie spent 18 years with global powerhouse IBM, serving her later years as vice president, assistant general counsel for investigations in cybersecurity, as well as holding key legal roles in high stakes regulatory enforcement and litigation matters. Before joining the in-house ranks, Carrie was an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, and completing the trifecta of in-house government and firm experience, Carrie began her legal career with Davis, Polk, and Wardell in New York. Audrey Harris, our third guest, or our guest, maybe our uh, the better way to say it is our second guest, um, is my AMI colleague and fellow managing director here. She recently joined us after being the co-chair of Mayor Brown's global anti-corruption and FCPA practice. She's also the former chief compliance officer for global resources company BHT, as well as a former white collar partner in Kirkland and Ellis's Washington DC office. Wow, so I'm impressed. Um, I, I hope you all are as well. Uh, because some of the best conversations that we all have are between friends and colleagues over coffee, and frankly, because it's a little too early to have anything stronger, we've named this series Compliance Coffee Talk. And today is our first in our two-part board edition. We're calling it Legal Compliance and the Board, New Roles and Expectations in a World of Expanding Stakeholders and Emerging Risks. So the first and most important question does everyone have their coffee ready? I have my coffee ready, and I want to tell you that I have two versions. I have the American coffee, as you'll say, and I also have um, my Australian proper flat white. I have to tell you, my team used to call this my American pitcher of coffee. Um, so the one thing I really did learn in Australia was um, one a uh, an appreciation for proper coffee, as they may call it, but also um, the role that the smaller coffees 
actually have in compliance um, because I think probably three or four times a day, uh, the phrase, do you want to grab a coffee would come up. And that's probably the best way that I made connections in compliance and with the business was grabbing a coffee downstairs at the barista and actually in a cup that wasn't paper. Uh, so one of my biggest transitions from the American law firm to the Australian in-house was ditching these paper um, large uh, pitchers of coffee and sitting at my desk, but rather having proper coffee with folks like you um, and having some time well spent, uh, just like I think our time today will be particularly well spent. Well, that's great. So you're certainly caffeinated, Carrie. <laughs> um, I'm not as particular as Audrey is about the uh, vehicle in which I drink coffee, but my preference is bold uh, and tempered with some milk. <laughs> I have um, what I will candidly um, call my fourth cup of coffee of the day. It is, you know, it's a little bit um, earlier here uh, on the on the West Coast. Um, okay, so guys. Before we talk about compliance and boards, um, which is um, certainly um, going to be a meaningful discussion, I just want you guys to talk a little bit about how you all know each other. Okay, well, I'll kick that off because I'll tell you that Carrie was for me what I think every CCO really needs, which is a credible, experienced, empathetic, but honest um, sounding board. So someone who can give you that practical and business approach advice, who's probably walked a few miles in your shoes or is actually still walking a few miles in your shoes as well. Um, I like to say that the best compliance advice I ever got was not from external counsel or experts, but actually from fellow CCOs and fellow in-house folks. So Carrie was really one of those people who helped me um, in that process and is probably the reason that I've vowed to do the same and always have an open door policy for anybody, any CCO or in-house compliance folks who want to talk about anything. Um, because really, Carrie, as I said, Carrie was up for me when I took my position uh, as CCO. So uh, today I'm selfishly looking forward to squeezing a few more advice and guidance out of her as well. Yeah, so thank you, Audrey. Um, the feeling is entirely mutual. And um, I think you and I both believe so strongly in the power of a network and colleagues supporting each other. And this relationship is a prime example of that. Excellent. So let's jump right into discussion questions. First off, and Carrie, I'll throw this one to you. What have you seen as the biggest change in or the biggest impact on boards of directors over the course of your career? I think um, more recently, there's an increased uh, focus by companies, um, board, their boards and regulators on in two areas, on board composition, um, but also on the board's mandate. And so on board composition, we're reading a lot about more diversity in boards, how boards are looking to expand their directors to include diversity in race, in gender, uh, in sexual identity, um, but also they're making increased efforts to broaden the talent on the board. So I think more traditionally, although this isn't exclusive, obviously every board is different and every company is different, I think more traditionally, boards focused on having a lot of accounting and finance expertise uh, on their boards. And now I think that they're looking to diversify 
talent to include, you know, business thinkers, people who understand supply chain. Technology is a very big area of expertise. Uh, and, and I think also, you know, crisis management. Um, so, uh, and also that, and I'll, I'll, I'll lead into the next area, which is uh, the um, a board's mandate or the areas, the landscape that boards are now responsible for, because I think in the area of risk and, and crisis management, that's expanding and it's becoming uh, more and more um, uh, an area of concern and, and focus. So for example, boards and management obviously are, are very focused and have been for years on ERM, on corruption and enforcement, which we all know very well, but more recently on ESG, on cybersecurity. Uh, and that's part of a board's mandate now. It's part of their oversight responsibility to understand the risks attendant with those areas um, and to be able to be uh, good guides to, to the company. And obviously management, uh, a general counsel in a company, a CCO in a company has to be really steeped in those areas to effectively um, help a company navigate through what can be some pretty scary sometimes, but certainly risky waters. Absolutely. I, I would agree with all of that. And Audrey, I'm interested to hear your perspective. No, I, I you know, shockingly, I agree with all of it. Um, the, the one thing, the way I kind of like to think about it is that it's really the rise of what I like to call reputational risk and the rise of the stakeholder um, that I think encompass everything that Carrie talked about. Um, but it's that what really is represented quite a bit by the 2019 um, business roundtable um, uh, you know, announcement that corporations are there for or should serve the stakeholders, not just the shareholders. I think that's symbolic and representative of what we're seeing here um, in that expansion of regulators all across the world, expansion of um, also the subject matters that Carrie was talking about of risk that boards now have to deal with that, um, and the expansion of stakeholders that they now have to deal with. So those three big expansions, which all kind of come together in that rise of reputational risk, are really what I have seen changing the dynamics in the boardroom um, and changing the dynamics between the legal in-house and um, the compliance in-house uh, in that what that evolution looks like over at least my career. Before we follow up on your comments regarding risk, Audrey, which I think are so important, I wanna go back and ask Carrie a follow-up regarding board composition. So uh, how do you as a former GC feel about having lawyers on board? So when he cooks in the kitchen or the more the merrier, where, where are you on the spectrum? Um, well, selfishly, because I'm interested in board work, I, I'm going to be an advocate for uh, for lawyers on boards. But, uh, you know, a typical lawyer answer that it, it depends. It depends on the personality of the company. It depends on the needs of the company and the existing composition of the board. But I think that lawyers can be very um, useful directors, members of a board. They're they're good students of the facts and they're very comfortable assessing risks, um, a, a more, more successful, in my opinion, more successful general counsels aren't just steeped in legal issues and understand you know, legal risk and, and are able to advise their clients on legal issues, but they're business partners to their clients. They've taken the time to understand the business and, they're, and they're, they have good, solid business minds. 
you know, it's obviously important, though, that if a, if a lawyer takes a position on a board, that they know their place. They're not the company's general counsel and they're not the company's management. They are but one member, one, di one director amongst many. But if there were an issue that that lawyer had particular expertise in, whether it's a crisis or whether it's a cyber incident or whether it's a government investigation, what, what a lit serious litigation, um, you know, it it is useful to be able to help other board members who feel less comfortable in that space to navigate the space, to understand or to listen to the advisors that management and the general counsel bring before the board, maybe outside counsel or another external advisor. Because ultimately the goal is, you know, with the board, you want the board to be inquisitive and you want them to ask questions. You want them to be transparency between management and the board, but you ultimately want them to be aligned. You want them to be able to make decisions as a body uh, to take a company through an issue, you know, to a successful outcome. So I think, I think um, again, if lawyers know their place and if they are the right fit, right personality fit for the board at that time, I think that they're a great addition to a board. I think that they've um, there've been traditionally that thought of oh lawyers will be too risk averse, um, you know, in that span in that spectrum. Um, I found you know the the opposite really. One of the things I talk about with um, new CCOs taking the role is find your compliance constituency. Um, sort of like technology has early adapters who are like that first, you know, 10% that are going to go by the electric car, or they're going to stand in line for the iPhone, they're going to be the ones, the constituencies that are the poles within your company. And you need to find those on your board and in your senior management. And I find that folks who have a background in some of these legal risks, whether or not it's because they have a legal background or because they've gone through um, some type of crisis or legal or compliance issue in some other place or some other company. Company, they can really be great champions for you on the board. Um, so that is something that I really look for and would encourage you know, when you're out there looking for board members to join in this environment where that reputational risk is so high. Um, those folks who can really be the champions of that risk um, and really champions for your legal and compliance constituencies can really be game changers. Great. So uh, I want to throw this back to both of you, but Audrey, you in particular, so you mentioned risk and in particular emerging risk. Um, immediately cybersecurity and ESG come to mind. Carrie mentioned both of those as well. Um, what role are you seeing those play on boards and in the legal and compliance function mandates? Well, I'll, I'll kind of start with the legal and compliance function mandates because I think these things have are really big drivers. Um, at the very general and high level, I'll say that the function, so legal function, compliance function, there's been some huge changes in, in my span of career about how those in-house um, functions function. Um, I think they're not uh, not anymore what I'll call the in-house post box. So there was a time when I think in-house, smaller in-house, they were a post box to external counsel, or they were just there when the business wanted to ask them for advice. If they weren't asked um, and consulted on that issue, um, then they didn't say, or they didn't involve themselves with that. Um, I think that now, because of particularly all these emerging risks, there's they're really active risk advisors. So they've really changed the way they're operating. And in so many global corporations, they're really small law firms um, inside in small compliance 
governments, um, you know, companies inside of these big globals. Um, and I think we first saw this, in my opinion, in anti-corruption, right? Where if you go back 15, 20 years, um, we only really had it outside of the regulatory, um, you know, sectors. We really only had legal functions and audit functions. Mm -hmm. And then we really saw this rise of the compliance function here, um, really with those enforcements starting post, I'll say 2004, with the FCPA and ABC. Then we saw that again, I'm gonna say, with data privacy, especially around GDPR and Europe. Um, and it's like, where are we gonna put uh, this issue that we now have? And it really ended up landing quite a bit in the legal and compliance teams um, in Europe in particular. Um, then I think second, we saw that with whistleblower, um, you know, regulations is particularly for SEC listed companies. We saw that pull and what happened was we saw um, hotlines and whistleblower response moving from the HR function into this ethics and compliance functions as well. And now we're seeing that I really think in ESG um, where things like human rights um, and other uh, ESG community impacts used to live with a community or a communications or even an investor relations group. And that might be also because of some of the first regulations there were about disclosures in that area. But what I'm really seeing is if not just cooperation between ethics and compliance and those other functions on these subjects, actually seeing the mandates move over into that compliance and ethics group because they know those same types of controls and they can really leverage in that space. And I do think that that's also changed in the relationship of CCOs and general counsels with boards because the expanded mandate just means more things to talk about um, and more discussions with your board in these key areas. What about you, Carrie? What's been your experience? When you're talking about these two particular risks, cyber and ESG, I think they are very much shared responsibilities of management, of the um, more traditional um, control functions like the chief compliance office, internal audit, the CIO's office, and and uh, and legal, uh, and also the board. Um, you know, the company, its management, obviously with its lawyers advising are responsible for the governance and the implementation of a company's cyber and ESG policies and programs. Boards are responsible for the oversight and more and more they bear responsibility in these areas. And there's obviously the emerging risk of not only management, but the boards being held accountable for a company, companies that perceived either underperformance or deficiency in these areas. So I think it's critical that uh, businesses have open dialogues internally amongst the stakeholders on those issues, um, but also have transparency and open discussions um, with, with their boards. And so, you know, let me just take them separately and talk about, you know, the two, the two areas and the kinds of things that businesses are thinking about and if, and if they're not already should, should be um, thinking about. Um, 
and and understand, you know, every every business is different, and every business um, at different size, different location, and different levels of maturity. So uh, some are, you know, well beyond the list. I'll, I'll just throw out, and some are just beginning. But no matter where you are on the continuum, I think it's very important that you either continue to enhance your programs in these areas or start to build them. So, for example, cybersecurity. We're hearing a lot about. Uh, a lot more about cybersecurity. Um, you know, an intrusion or an attack on a company can have enormous risks, different kinds of risks, reputational, very largely financial. Um, and there's uh, an, an increased scrutiny now uh, and expectation in the enforcement community on disclosures. Uh, and I think that we will see, we're beginning to see that there may be an additional requirements on at least public companies to make certain disclosures in this space, right? So what should a company be thinking about and what should it be speaking with its board about? Um, first of all, you know, management with their legal team and if necessary with external advisors should think about, you know, have we data mapped our organization? You know, do we know where the critical data is and what the systems are? What kind of systems is the company using? What's the IT infrastructure? Is it, is it um, legacy? Are they connected platforms, cloud, a combination of all of it, which is typical? Are the networks that the company is using secure? You know, is there appropriate encryption, firewalls, malware protection? Um, identify the third parties that the business does business with and what are the risks um, in cyber with respect to those relationships? Um, if the company doesn't have policies or programs in place, put them in place. You know, does a company have a CISO, uh, you know, a chief information security officer? Um, and whether it's whether it's a group of two people or a group of 50 people, again, depending on size and level of maturity um, and liquidity, et cetera, you know, start to build that framework. Um, educate your employees all the time. You know, if a cyber incident happens, a phishing or a smishing, you know, incident, use it as an opportunity to educate employees about what they are and how to respond to them and avoid those situations, right? Have an incident response team. Be proactive about thinking through what if we have a cyber event, be it little or very big, what what are we going to do to respond? How are we going to avoid prevent a situation like that from happening? And again, you know, whether it's a team of two or a team of 50, start to build that team. And I'll put in a plug for outside counsel here. But um, I think it's a really good idea to have um, outside counsel at the ready to know who your outside counsel is going to be if the company has a serious incident uh, and really needs to have, and, and by the way, IT specialties, if the company doesn't have it internally, to know how to very immediately address that situation and address some of the governance and the disclosure issues that may come with it. So that's that's my uh, shtick on on cyber, let me jump very quickly to ESG. You know, a company, companies now more and more, if you read their disclosures, are, are including details about their commitments and strategies in this space. Um, and so then with respect to the board, the companies should be, should be making decisions, you know, how often uh, should they discuss ESG initiatives and, and policies uh, and measurements with the board? And what part of the board? Should it be a committee of the board that's convened or should it be the entire board or, or, or maybe even both? Um, 
I think that there should be a tremendous focus for the board and management on data quality and also technology. You know, how does the company collect information or retain or retrieve or evaluate ESG data? And by the way, that would be a completely different podcast, but data in general, right? Data in general. Um, you know, the board should be asking, and obviously management should be focused on whether there are controls in place for tracking that data and reporting on key metrics so that you can see the improvement and the enhancements in those areas, not only so the board understands, but also in the company's public disclosures. So I, I would say, you know, set your targets on goals and, and progress and have measurable progress, right? And an open dialogue with your board, management and the board, so that the board is pressure testing um, what management is, pre is presenting to them in terms of their uh, progress along, along, obviously, both initiative cyber and ESG. I think that's really great practical advice. I think one of those other issues that comes up <laughs> um, is the uh, just it uh, is what is ESG? So I don't care if you've had that, but it's like, what is in that bucket? Okay, the board is supposed to, um, you know, discuss ESG on a periodic basis and the board's going, does that include anti-corruption? Does that include, is that just, is that carbon? Does that include our human rights, our community? Does data privacy include as ESG? Um, how, how have you, you know, guided folks through that one? Look, I don't think that there's a clear formula. I think this is a very evolving uh, space. But, you know, you can break it up into its acronym, right? The environmental, the social and the governance. And so I I would probably put a lot of what you just put in your laundry list in the uh, in the G portion um, and environment would be more of your, you know, your impact on the your impact on the environment. Um, and the social more like the diversity and inclusion programs that companies have. I mean, I'm being very uh, you know, uh, minimizing what is a very meaty and huge, you know, breadth of area. But if the board really doesn't know what it is, certainly your first presentations to the board shouldn't be doing what I just did and we just did, which is using acronyms, which, by the way, is something I hate anyway. I really, really try to speak in English and I don't understand the acronym. But you should be doing, companies should be doing a presentation to the board, taking the board through each of the elements and taking the board through where the company is on each of those elements. And that, that's what I'm talking about in terms of measurable progress. Start somewhere. And then the next time you're going into your board, show the improvement and show and sh uh, in, in those areas and, and keep the same format if that's the easiest way to continue to have that discussion until it becomes much more of a natural discussion and you don't need to be guided by, you know, the three prongs. Well, yeah, and I think, I mean, I ask it really because I think it is so dynamic um, and that defining it, um, and there's lots of frameworks out there too, where we're talking about from the UN Global Compact to others as to how you're going to bucket these. But I agree, I mean, the first and most important thing is deciding with your management and with your board how you're going to address these issues and where those are going to be, and then having that framework to keep coming back to it. Um, and that allows you to actually have that data and that comparison. Because without that framework or that consistent way of thinking it among the board um, and among your senior management, you all may be talking a different language and thinking a different thing, um, and especially in these super dynamic kind of environments. I'm hearing an idea for another podcast. I think we need to do this. 
ESG specific podcast, particularly for all the issuers out there who are now trying to grapple with the SEC's proposed rule on climate disclosures. Um, this is such a big topic and such an important one, but we're going to move on. Um, I want to talk about, um, about interacting with boards in times of crisis. So we've talked about a cyber breach. Let's say there's a news story where a supplier um, is using child labor and activist shareholder services, a DOJ subpoena arrives. These, all, these things have one thing in common, and that is that they could rise to the level of a crisis. As the general counsel and CCO, what's your best advice for in-house folks who find themselves um, in, that, um, in that role as crisis manager? First, I would say prepare in advance. Um, you know, re really, you can't anticipate uh, a, a crisis, but you can anticipate what kinds of risks are the larger risks for a company. And so, you know, try to identify those risks in advance and, you know, and, and um, enhance uh, processes where they're weak in those areas to help mitigate um, an issue when it comes. Um, and it helps you be more proactive about what a company's risk is uh, and about what your response is when, when, a, when a an unexpected, I'll call it crisis, sort of an unexpected but really big problem comes in the door. You know, when, when that big problem comes in the door, the first thing I would say is, you know, assess the severity of the crisis, right? Don't lose your head. Uh, don't overreact. You know, really just, you know, you have to take a deep breath. Everybody wants answers right away. But you have to, and you have to be efficient. You have to be timely about a crisis. You have to have, you know, a communications team that may be having to respond very quickly. You've got a, a CEO who's, you know, pounding on your phone or your door, you know, wanting to know. And you've got a board and, you know, external accountants. Um, uh, but um, assess how severe the situation is, so that when you're presenting the situation, you're being you're you're being um, level about. The, 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 um, how risky it is or isn't. Um, I can't stress enough that facts matter, right? Don't jump to conclusions. Take the time to understand what the issue is and, how, and, and what the problem is. And I don't mean take three months or three weeks, but give yourself time to get your arms around the facts and then move swiftly and with a calm head. Know who your constituents are Who's going to be reaching out to you to ask you a lot of questions? So get to them before they're pounding on your door. And who are going to be the people that you're going to need to work with? Who are the teams within the company or external to the company that you're going to need their help in addressing the situation? Um, and, and decide, you know, a company should decide, obviously, very, very severe crises generally require external help, whether it's outside counsel or some other kind of advisor. And I would, you know, I'd recommend if you know at the outset that the situation that you're, you've encountered is one of those immediately, don't, don't wait too long. In fact, don't wait really long at all to go and make those phone calls and get those advisors in at the outset. So you're working, you're partnering together as a team to get through the issue. So important. And I love what you said about preparation. Audrey, two, two quick tips uh, for operating in a crisis. Well, first, I have to say that I totally agree with Carrie that if you have, you need those protocols and those relationships prior to the crisis. Um, if your GC and or and or your CCO do not have a seat at the table and do not have those protocols, escalation or otherwise, or those relationships beforehand, um, both with your with your senior management, with your board, but also with your external counsel, um, it is going to be much harder to get the to get you know that seat at that table um, during the crisis um, and. I will say when there's a crisis, it's usually 
at like three o'clock in the morning or some god awful hour. So having your external counsel that you can actually know that you can call their mobile at no matter what time it is, it's actually really valuable. Um, get really valuable tool that you have. If I have to give it two, um, knowing that there's a lot that I would say on this, um, one is if you have a mature program, particularly a compliance program, because I'm biased in that area. Um, don't underestimate the line of sight that your people, your team, and your program have in a crisis. So sometimes it might not be something that's really within your framework mandate even. Or that, do not underestimate because your compliance folks out there in the field, having that group-wide, especially if you have a team and a program that reports group-wide up into a CCO, that is an invaluable line of sight. Mm -hmm. And in my experience in crises, it might not be you know, the business because they might be regionally set up. It might not be legal. They may be regionally set up as well um, that have such a line of sight or have the latest you know, um, visit to that particular entity, JV, you name it, right? Um, so don't underestimate the line of sight that you have there and that your compliance information can actually be incredibly helpful. So this is a, you know, a great opportunity to show a different type of value with your people and your program and your connections that you've built. Um, the second one is more operational. And just like Carrie was talking about, like, what do I do immediately? Um, and this is something that my mentor and I years ago, like 20 plus years ago came up with, um, when there ever there's a crisis, we say spirit, as in throw the spear at it. Um, and what is it? It's stabilize, preserve, evaluate, investigate, analyze, remediate. So why is that stabilized first? It's exactly what Carrie was talking about. I mean, if you stabilize and preserve everything else, you can take a breath, <sighs> figure out what's going on, and attack it very methodically. But as long as you stabilize, as long as whatever's happening isn't going to continue to happen, I always think about it in an anti-corruption uh, bent uh, because of my background. So I think make sure there's no payment going out the door to that third party, um, or there's steps you can immediately take that can at least um, cordon off the jurisdiction or something for um, that those touch points for going forward. Nothing to make it worse, right? Um, so stabilize and preserve, and then it allows you to have that moment to analyze um, and then to put together that plan to investigate um, as well. And at the same time, think about those remedial actions um, that are happening. Uh, so that is the one thing that, I mean, the two bits that I would give. One, don't underestimate your line of sight um, if you have a mature compliance program and really the value you can give there. And two, if you have a crisis, um, make sure to spirit. So important, so helpful. Um, in the time that we have left, I want to talk just briefly about escalation. I think this is such an important topic. And I certainly know from years of counseling companies myself that often there are issues that aren't the crisis or crisis level issues that often have smaller precursors, inevitable canary in the coal mine, you might say. So what can GCs and CCOs think about in reporting and determining what and when to escalate to whom? And Carrie, I'll let you take this one first. Okay. Um, again, uh, know who the key stakeholders are, right? Who, who, who are you reporting to? So internally, uh, senior man, if you're the general counsel, you're speaking with your CEO, your CFO, you may be speaking with the impacted business lead um, to, to let them know what's going on and to gather information from them. Um, 
in terms of reporting, you know, you have an obligation um, at the right time uh, and in the right manner to speak with your external accountants and obviously with the your audit chair, your, your audit committee, potentially, um, maybe the full board. Um, and what order you do that in is important. And, and the assessment of whether you need to speak with those stakeholders is important. Um, I, there's, I, there's no recipe for it's a really a judgment call. It depends a lot on the facts um, uh, and, and on the company and on the level of importance of the crisis. Um, I, I, I think it's always important to maintain an open communication and, and as transparent a communication as possible with senior management. So they understand what's going on, at least from a, a legal risk and a business risk perspective in their company. And that doesn't mean calling your CEO every day to give them an update on the new thing that happened that day. But it does mean whatever your regular cadence is with your CEO to use some of the time to discuss some of that risk. And obviously, you know, have to use your judgment if a crisis comes in the door, something that is more important. You don't wait for your regular update meeting with your CEO. You get you you, you find time much more immediately to raise the issue. Um, you have to make an assessment whether it's an issue that is of uh, uh, important enough or the right kind of issue to raise with the chair of your audit committee. And also you have to understand the politics and the dynamics between who do you speak with first, the chair of your audit committee or your external accountants. And again, there's no recipe for that. And sometimes it varies a little bit. And a lot of it is taste and, and choice, et cetera, et cetera, between, you know, what, what is the chair of your audit committee prefer or what is the, what is the issue and what is the the crisis. I also think that you have to be um, careful uh, about what you raise to your audit committee. Um, not that, not I'm not suggesting at all that you're not transparent or open with your board. You should be, but some some risks and some issues are just not board level information. Um, and and I think you know oversharing can actually present its own risks. To the board, right? Because you're now making them responsible because you've told them about an issue that really isn't that part of their mandate. It isn't part of their oversight responsibilities. It's really management's issue, and, ma and for management, um, uh, you know, to uh, uh, to handle, and not for the board. So it, it's a hard question to answer. I think it's a really interesting and important topic, but a lot, so much of it is experience and good judgment. Audrey, what do you have to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say, and you know, obviously agree with you better have your reporting protocols and your ways of working in relationships established from the start. And I'll even say this, which is established hopefully before you even take the job um, as GC or as CCO, you understand their, it's a great question to ask when you're being interviewed, by the way. Um, what's your philosophy? And actually, I was asked this at one point in time. Um, if something happened and they gave me a scenario, how would you escalate? Would you go to, how would you report to? I thought this is a fantastic question because you are able to really assess somebody's judgment and what they're thinking, but ask that of the company um, and how they feel about it. But that's going to tell you whether or not you're going to have that empowerment and if their philosophy really aligns with yours at the same time. So hopefully, you know, you'll have these reporting, you know, traditional kind of, or I should say, regular reporting or periodic reporting um, in there, and you're able to really leverage that when a crisis happens. So I would say for that regular reporting, the way I try to think about it is to guide by transparency and consistency. 
And I kind of think about it like a concentric circle. Um, so think about each one of those constituencies, whether or not they're your risk owners and your senior management, um, whether or not they're your CEO, your external auditors, the chair of your audit committee that hopefully you're meeting with regularly one-on-one, -on -one, um, or your board. And you have to think about what the same transparent information, but what level for what role, as Carrie talks about there too. So it might be that for the board, it's what and where. And for your next concentric circle, it's what, where, and why. <laughs> and for your next, it's what, where, why, and how. Uh, for those kind of specific things. It's just one visual that I've used over the years to kind of think about you know, what do I need and how am I going to set this up so that it's all consistent and all transparent. But as Carrie said, if everything's important and urgent, nothing is. Um, so you really have to think about those roles. And also one thing I always think about with a board is why am I asking or why am I presenting this? Is it for information, awareness, action, endorsement? And I just really um, would actually have that right up front. And even when you're working with your senior management or your risk owners, what is their role here and what are you expecting? Why are you telling them this? I think becomes really key to think about and start establishing that from the beginning in your periodic reporting. And then when the crisis happens, it just comes very natural. Um, the one thing I would say is because I was raised a Kirkland analyst, and this is a very Kirkland thing to say. <laughs> um, when you're an associate, they'd always tell you, do not let your partner get pied or your client get pied, which means, you know, those silly movies from way back when, when you open the door and a pie goes right in somebody's face. Never let your board get pied. Um, let there always be enough information um, that they can you know, hook back to and talk about where it might be a surprise, but um, it, it is, it, you're, you've gotten there first, you've tried to explain and give context to it, and hopefully in your regular reporting, you've set a framework and a context for them to understand um, how the company is dealing with these particular issues. If it's even an unforeseen crisis, at least that subject matter, how's the company dealing with that, um, that prevents the feeling of being pied. Let me just say one thing about the pie, because I, I thousand percent agree with what you've just said. Um, you know, sometimes though something is so unexpected um, and so unforeseen. Uh, and I guess the best advice that I can give after you've recovered from the shock and you've discussed it with, you know, your management is don't be afraid to speak with the board, though, because it's, you know, you have to speak with them and you might get a licking. <laughs> you know, Why didn't you anticipate this? And how did this happen? But that's a conversation you have to have. Um, but you can't not talk about it and you can't not raise it. And sometimes, you know, it's an unfair question that I think everyone who's been in the GCC or the CCOC has asked. What's next? What's the, you know, you could say, um, known, anticipated, me too, um, yeah, and, and previous, prior to that October timeframe, which everyone knows about, what's that next thing that's going to hit us? And there's lots of ways we all try to look at leading indicators and other things. But sometimes, you know, I secretly in my heart want to say, I don't know, because I don't have a crystal ball, right? <laughs> um, let me see. There's lots of things and ways, whether it's benchmarking or indicators, but you're absolutely right. We all don't have crystal balls. So you may have a little bit of pie on your face and just have to talk through it um, and, and be willing to appear with that pie right all over your face. Right, and with a plan, right? I mean, 
Because because that's what your job is, right? And that's and ultimately that's what the board's responsibility is too. I mean, your job is to propose, you know, a plan to the board to navigate through the problem, right? Absolutely. Um, and the board, it, you know, helps in its with its oversight responsibility. So don't go to the board saying, "Oh my God, I have this problem," and not have a solution or at least a proposed solution or an action plan for the problem. That I'm not advising you to do that. But um but you know you don't have all the answers and there, look there's nothing wrong with saying I don't have the I don't have the answer to your question now. Um, but I know it's your question and I'm going to come back and I'm going to continue to report to you on this issue. But I don't I don't have all the answers right now. I think that's really important that you be willing to say that you don't know. Um, I've heard many times that people say, you know, that that's one of the things that we struggle with most in these positions. We think we have to know everything. The other one is is setting and then this little up and setting expectations with your board that there will be problems um, and that it's just a matter of, and I always talk about it's a matter of whether or not the individuals fail, you know, um, that the company or the companies fail, the individual um, or whether or not we're able, you know, to respond and detect those issues later. But to really think that there will never be a problem or an issue, um, I actually would say something like, I guarantee there will be. Um, it's just a level of magnitude and how we'll be able to, to respond to it um, and what type of issue that is. But really setting that expectation prevents, I think, institutionally, the feeling of pushing things under the rug too, right? Um, that you're willing to go uh, with a plan and with a, a context, but the board understands um, that um, there will be issues. And the issue is how did we prepare for them and how did we respond to it and what's our plan? I love what I'm hearing from both of you consistently, which is that your sort of regular reporting and transparency regime is going to get you through these crises. If you don't, um, if you don't have, as, as Carrie said, your CEO, for example, you are regularly reporting to her or to him about what's going on in terms of risk at the company. When a crisis comes, uh, you're really going to be flat-footed. So I think that's um, terrific advice from both of you. But with that. Um, we are way over time, unfortunately. So although we all know we could go on forever and ever, we are going to have to wrap this one up. Um, but please stay tuned for our next installment of Compliance Coffee Talk, which is going to be called the Commercial Case for Compliance. So thank you, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.